All right, here we are. The uh, name of this class, of course, is uh, Grace in the Book of Romans. This is lesson number 13 in that series. The title of this lesson is The Result of Grace. And today, Lord willing, we'll be covering uh, Romans chapter 12 all the way to chapter 16. And uh, as I have mentioned in the past, this is uh, lesson number 13 is the last lesson in our series. Well, let's begin by reading chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul makes a summary statement. Let's just read that. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so in this summary statement, Paul is saying, if all that I have said is true, you know, the previous 11 chapters, if, if all that I have said is true, therefore, you should respond in the following way. And the way you should respond is that you should become living sacrifices. So another way of saying this, if if God's grace has justified you from your sins, if God's grace has provided the Holy Spirit to enable you to be transformed by the process of sanctification, then your response is to manifest the work of God's grace through the Holy Spirit in your everyday lives. And then beginning with that statement, Romans chapter 12, 13, 14, 15 and 16, Paul goes on to give a description of what this transformation is supposed to look like in the everyday life of a Christian. Um, The the nuts and bolts, if you wish. Remember I said um, uh, the Holy Spirit is given to us for two reasons. One, to begin the process of sanctification in us and two, to resurrect us from the dead at the coming of Jesus. So this process of sanctification, uh, he didn't describe it all at the beginning. He's going to give the nuts and bolts, if you wish, the nuts and bolts of every day living as a Christian, as a sanctified individual. He's going to do this in chapters 12 to 16. And basically, Three things are going to take place in a, in a Christian's life as he or she is being sanctified. One, uh, a sense of humility. Two, uh, a greater love for others. And three, uh, submission. And you know when they say the mark of a true Christian or the mark of the true church, th- this is the mark of the true Christian. Someone who uh, lives and acts in a humble manner, has a love for other people, and of course is in submission to the proper authorities above him or her. So those who live the sanctified life are the final result of the grace that God has given. That's the final result. And the final result of a sanctified life is that we have a group of individuals who are saved, who have the Holy Spirit within them, who are living sanctified lives. And what do we call that group? We call that group the church, the church that belongs to Christ, the church of Christ. Now, as you probably have guessed by now, I don't have time to read the last four chapters. And the reason that I, you know, I'm, I'm grouping all of these last four chapters together is that 
you know, the title of this series and what we've been focusing on is the idea of grace in the book of Romans. Well that idea of grace in the book of Romans is explained in the first 11 chapters and we've covered those. The last four explains how should a person living under this grace, how should that person respond. So we're going to take a look. We don't have time to you know, go into uh, these uh, issues, these virtues in detail, but we'll, we'll cover the high points here. So the marks of transformation. Remember I've mentioned already humility, love of others, submission. So let's begin with uh, humility, shall we? He says uh, in uh, verse, or chapter 12, uh, verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So if everything that Paul says is true, then our lives should bear the marks of transformation. And the first mark of that transformation, he says, is humility. Now, Humility is not, you know, we, we think a humble person sometimes, we have the wrong idea. We think humility is like speaking softly and not being very aggressive and you know, not being physically strong. Some people equate humility with being a wimp. But humility is none of those things. Humility, as Paul describes it here, is having an accurate assessment of who and what we are. You know, I don't think of myself more than I am, but I don't think of myself less than I really am either. You know, the ability to say thank you when complimented or I'm sorry when we mess up, these are marks of, of humility. Humility is demonstrated through service, not shyness. You know, shyness is a problem. Service is, is not a problem. So the the point Paul is making is that our transformation moves us towards a humility of mind. In other words, an accurate vision of ourselves and humility of actions, uh, the use of our gifts and talents in the service of other people rather than strictly in the service of ourselves and our uh, agenda. So the fleshly or the proud person will use his talents you know, to build bigger barns, if you wish, to serve his own ego or comfort or security or his own goals. But the transformed man seeks to multiply his talents in the building of the kingdom, not the building of his own house. So humility is the first mark of the transformed life that Paul is talking about. The second one is love in, uh, chapter, in um, verses 9 to 21. So the second is the mark of love. Remember Jesus, I've quoted this before, in John chapter 13, 35 says, and this is how all men will know that you're my disciples, in the way that you love one another. So in the passage in Romans you know, 9 to 21, Paul describes some of the facets of the kind of love that evidences a legitimate transformation. So for the transformed individual, for the individual going through the process of sanctification, what does the love look like? What does that person's love look like? Well, Paul uh, uh, lists seven marks of the type of love uh, expressed by the sanctified person. First of all, he says the love is 
sincere. Verse 9a. He says, let love be without hypocrisy, not a show of love, but real love, felt love, sincere, loyal and pure love. Not sexual. He's not talking about that kind of love. Not social, you know, like philanthropy, that type of love. Not even family love is he talking about here. But sacrificial love that will pay a price to help or to sustain another person. The kind of love that goes to a cross for a friend. Not double crosses a friend. Another mark of this type of love is that it is pure. Paul says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So a love that is high and noble and pure and right. A love that seeks the good for the other individual. A third mark. This love is edifying. Verses 10 and 11. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Uh, Let me see. There's one more verse here. Uh, He says rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. So all of the things that he mentions here are things that people do to edify, to encourage, to build up other people. So he's saying this love expressed by individuals who are being sanctified by the Spirit This love builds everything and everyone that it touches. Uh, It esteems and builds the brethren uh, that it loves. It works hard in serving in the kingdom. It perseveres whether the times are good or or bad. That's fervent in the spirit, meaning persevering uh, in the spirit. Another mark of this love, he mentions, is It's graciousness. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And so uh, uh, this love is willing to overlook an offense. This type of love is not easily provoked. You're not thin skinned, not ready to be insulted by every little thing. This love overlooks criticism and gives people the benefit of the doubt. This is the kind of love that is Christian love. This is the kind of love demonstrated by an individual who is truly being transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Another um, quality of this love is that it is emphatic, empathetic rather. Uh, Romans 12, 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So this love not only feels for the other's pain, but shares the other's pain, but also shares the other's joy. Uh, This kind of love is not afraid to get involved in somebody else's life. Um, uh, But remember, not in a way to meddle, but willing to listen, willing to care, willing to uh, willing to help. Another quality, this love is meek. In verse 16, he says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So Let's get the difference between humility and meekness. Humility is having an accurate view of oneself. Meekness is the absence of the need to have one's own way all the time. See the difference? Being of the same mind means compromise. It means giving up one's will in order for unity to happen. 
the willingness to do it the other guy's way in order to build him up. That's meekness. You know, we mustn't compromise truth, of course. We don't want to compromise what is good and right. But most divisions you know, in families and churches occur because one wants his own way and usually because he thinks his way is superior. So he's not meek. You know, usually he's not meek because he's proud. You know, he can't give up his will. He can't, he can't, this individual cannot even fathom the idea that someone else's way might be better. So we can have all the uh, uh, outward markings of the true church. But if there is uh, no meekness within, we are like the Pharisees. We're concerned with externals and not truly transformed from within. And then the seventh quality he mentions This kind of love is peaceful. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all, um, in the sight of all men. The work of the saved is reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ to an estranged world. In a war, you know, ambassadors, they don't fight. So love in a transformed heart is peaceful and it seeks peace actively with other people. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So Paul explains not only the peaceful quality of transformed love, but also how one arrives there. So first he says, deny yourself the pleasure of revenge. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. That's the first. How do we arrive at this peace? Well, first of all, give up the desire, give up the quote right that you think you have to get revenge. And secondly, he said, respect what is right in the sight of all men. In other words, respect what is right. You can protect yourself. You can stand up for what is right. You can use what is right to achieve justice and goodness, but do not return evil for evil. All right. In verses 18 to 20, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. So seek the peaceful way uh, as the solution. Uh, This can be costly and seem like a disadvantage at times. But Paul reassures us that God will mete out justice in the end. This is his promise. You know, justice is mine. Revenge is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That is a promise to those who have been aggrieved, to those who have suffered injustice. He promises you he's going to make it right. There will be justice one day. And then verse 21, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, don't, don't revert back to the actions and methods that you used in your old life. Allow the, the new man to respond. In other words, let grace work in you towards other people, even your enemies, even those who have offended you or hurt your feelings. You know, let grace work towards them not sin. Don't respond in a, sinful, in a sinful way. And I've mentioned this before. And don't expect people who are not Christians 
to, respect, uh, to respond with grace to your mistakes either. You know, we're always thinking well, everybody should act like Christians. You know, well, no. Why? Well, they don't have the spirit. They're not motivated by the grace of God. They've not experienced the cross of Christ. How can they act and respond like Christians? Listen, we are Christians. You know, we are Christians and we have trouble <laughs> reacting like Christians sometimes. So you can imagine somebody who isn't a Christian. All right. So we said the marks, right? Um, 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 so we talked about love. Another mark of that transformed life, submission. In chapters 13, hang on, let me just change that. In chapters 13 and 14, Paul goes on to talk about the third mark of a transformed life. As I mentioned, submission. Um, an attitude of submission is the ability to recognize and accept authority, whether it be the authority of a person over us, parents, teachers, drill sergeant, you know, uh, the authority of a person or the authority of a system, the government or the school system or the rules uh, you know, at our tennis club, you know, or merely the, the authority imposed on us by a set of circumstances. Sometimes we can or cannot do things because the circumstances don't permit us to do that. You know, it's like the wrong time. A lot of people, you know, when it's the wrong time, when the circumstances are preventing them from moving forward, turning left or right, you know, they have to, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a red light. You've got to stop. You know, they go ahead anyways. They, 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 they just can't wait. They run ahead of God, as I, I call it, running ahead of God. They will not submit to the circumstances around them. I remember a friend of mine uh, who was blind almost from birth. And uh, he used to say, uh, why can't I drive a car? I should be able, I have a right to drive a car. You know, people should make, you know, people should invent a car that a blind person can. And he used to, you know, he used to complain about this all the time. And I told him, look, uh, you need to accept the fact that you have a handicap, a serious one. You cannot see. Of course, the time is coming now, right, with self-driving cars when the thing that he wanted maybe 25 years ago wasn't possible. The circumstances were limiting him from having this, this ability. And now those circumstances are changing. And uh, perhaps, hopefully, in his lifetime, he will be able to well, be in a car, have his own car, and not necessarily have to control it himself because we're moving into the era of driverless cars. Okay. So the Christian um, is able to recognize and submit to authority in all of its forms. This is an obvious and central trait of one who knows God and who knows God's grace. If one truly knows God, in other words, if a person has an appreciation and understanding of this being called God, and not just knows about God. See, that's the difference. Some people, they know about God, an academic or a head knowledge rather than a personal knowledge. You know, I know uh, President Bush, the second President Bush, President George Bush. I know him. I know what he looks like. I could recognize him on the street, know what he did. You know, I know him you know, academically. I know who he is. But I don't know him personally. I've never met him. We've never sat down and talked. You know, I don't know him personally. Well, in the same way, people are like that with God. They know God. They know what he says. But they don't know him personally. They don't have that personal relationship. 
So for a person that actually knows God personally, submission is a natural reaction. That's my point. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, whenever God manifested Himself to man, men fell on their faces in immediate submission and worship. There was no bargaining. Are you really God? Are you really an angel from God? I don't know. I'm not sure. But you know, that didn't work like that. It didn't work like that. When God appeared immediately, they were on their faces. When an angel appeared, they were frightened. They didn't try to bargain with that individual. There was immediate submission. So those who say they belong to God's kingdom, those who say they are disciples of Jesus Christ, they're saying that they know God in Christ. And if they do, they must learn submission because that is the place of man in his relationship with God. He is to be in submission. See what I'm saying? There's no bargaining or wrestling there. That's our natural position if we truly know God. You know, I have to say this about the Muslim faith. They have this idea you know, of submission, submissiveness. That, that's, that's at the core of their religion. I mean, the name Islam means to surrender. So they got that part right. Submissiveness doesn't come naturally. We have to learn it. Even Jesus learned about the confining nature of humanity through the things that he suffered. In other words, he had to obey. Now, it's not like he had to obey to to do what was right and good. He was divine. He was God. But he was confined to human nature. So he had to obey, if you wish. He had to submit to the confines of the nature that he took on for a time. That's what the Bible means when it says you know, he, had, he learned obedience. You know, as God, he didn't have to obey. Others obeyed him. But as man, he did have to obey. We also learn about this, quote, mode, this attitude of spirit through various avenues. And that's what Paul describes here. How do we learn about submission? Well, first of all, we learn about submission uh, through um, uh, submission to general um, authority. Let me get a, a thing there. In chapters 13, 1 to 7, no time to read that, but I'll just break it down for you. So Paul lived at a time when the most ruthless world government reigned, and yet he explained the attitude of Christians towards this government in general and uh, towards this government and government in general. And the attitude of the Christian is submissiveness, obedience. The role of Christians in this world is not to promote the kingdoms of men, but to establish and maintain the kingdom of God. Now Rome, the empire, fell without the political intervention of Christians. You know, Rome didn't fall because Christians were marching in the street and undermining its power. What happened is the kingdom of God eventually overtook it. As it will with all other kingdoms on earth that man established. Look at the USSR. Right? They fell without a shot being fired. So Christians can be political, 
but only if they remember that they serve in the political arena as ambassadors for Christ. Their loyalty is to a higher government. That's why it's hard for Christians to serve in the government because there are a lot of things that happen in government that they can't be party to. Now all government should submit to God's authority and those who don't, God will depose them in His own time and manner. There is no government or leader in the world that is beyond the reach of God's justice. We just sometimes don't see him exercise that justice in our lifetime. So Christians show the work of the Spirit in that they recognize the true nature of government in God's plan and they respond to it with this understanding. Another way we learn, we exercise submissiveness is towards society, towards our neighbors. Chapter 13, 8 to 14. One who is in submission to God and the government respects the society created by God and overseen by the government that he has put and permits to be in power. So in verses 8 to 10 of this passage, he summarizes the attitude of the Christian in regard to society in general. Now the Old Testament law regulated every form of conduct in regards to treatment of others within that society. Paul reduces all of these regulations to one simple command. Love your neighbor. And so the Christian submissive nature is seen in his attitude of love towards society in general. And he lives by the rules of law as well as the rules of love to create an environment which promotes peace and respect and goodness in society, including family. You know, I, you know, all of us get just one vote in this country. And sometimes we don't think one vote counts for a lot. But you know, we're, you know, it's necessary for us to do our, quote, civic duty. But if we really want to have an impact on society, begin with just the person next to you on your street. Do you have a widow lady who is who lives next door or across the street, you know, bringing her some food, offering to mow her lawn, uh, collecting her mail, uh, salting her driveway. You know, these small and acts of kindness, this goes towards building a better world. Some march in the street for rights and that's okay. Uh, but, but, but Christians can have an impact on this world. Um, um, an influence for the grace of God, one person at a time. Just start with your neighbors. You know, just begin with your neighbors. Make your street a better place to uh, a better place to live. Um, another um, area where this submission is exercised is, of course, within the church, within our uh, brotherhood, within those that we uh, share this uh, congregation. Uh, Paul closes the circle right on this idea of submission to the government, to society, to family, and then to the church. Your family are not necessarily your brethren, but your brethren will always be your family. So in the last few chapters, he describes the submissive attitude that needs to exist between brethren as a mark that they are both born of the same spirit. 
the key verses, verse 7, chapter 15, verse 7, he says, therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So the issue at the time you know, that Paul was writing here, the issue at the time was the fact that some in the church who were more confident in the grace of Christ, they permitted themselves certain things. For example, the eating of meat that was once used in pagan rituals. So pagans uh, had animal sacrifices. They would do that. And unlike the Jews where the priests were to you know, eat the meat and you know, dispose of it in that way, uh, in the pagan temples, they would take that meat and just sell it. Right. And, and it would be sold in the marketplace. And some Christians recognized no such thing as an idol, so on and so forth. They would buy meat. They didn't ask any questions. They took it home. Other Christians, more sensitive in their spirit, in their consciences, felt that if the meat had once been used in a pagan ritual, they, they, couldn't, you know, they couldn't participate in eating that meat. Okay? So there was a problem here. Uh, between those who permitted themselves and uh, those who didn't. A conflict arose because those who had the confidence to eat without guilt became impatient with the fear and the uncertainty of those who couldn't partake because of a, uh, you know, a sensitive conscience. The, uh, um, uh, this impatience among some demonstrated itself in unkindness. They would pass judgment on the, quote, immaturity of the weak. You know, comments like, well, what's his problem? You know, what's his problem? Well, I don't care what anybody thinks. You know, so they were saying things like, I don't care what anybody thinks. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, if, if that's his problem, that's his problem. There was that attitude. The weak, those who had a sensitive conscience, on the other hand, they seized the opportunity to criticize and condemn others in participating in the same thing that they themselves would not participate because of their conscience. You know, they would go and say, well, the Lord didn't command this and you guys are wrong. And you know, this is the debate that was going on. And so what is the result of this? Well, the result was division and isolation brought on by pride, lack of love, failure to submit. So Paul tells them to measure their attitude towards each other against the attitude of Christ towards them. You know, if you're having a hard time accepting your brother, you know, either way, you know, compare your attitude towards your brother to the attitude that Christ had toward you. You who were former, you know, fornicators, adulterers, thieves, homosexuals, idolaters, Okay, I don't need to you know, continue the list. Imagine his attitude toward you. He died for you while you were in those sins. And so the strongest of all, Jesus, did not judge us in our weakness. He became weak in order to save the weak. And so the idea here that Paul is getting across Mutual submission in Christ sees the strong becoming weak to help the weak grow strong. So they too can be strong in Christ and thus glorify, glorify God. The, the problem is not the issue, I eat meat, sacrificed idol or not. The problem was submission. Who is going to submit? 
who is going to deny themselves a right in order to support someone they didn't think should have the right to that opinion. All right, so the final exhortation, after describing you know, the three manifestations of a life truly dedicated to God, you know, the sanctified life, what are the marks of it? Humility, love, submission in all of its forms. Paul completes his letter with final greetings and an exhortation to people that he knows in the church. So this is my final lesson, of course, on this particular topic. Uh, So I echo these very same sentiments. So first thing he tells them as he closes out, just do it. You know, the Nike, the Nike logo there. Just do it. Chapters 15 verses 14 to 21. He says to them, listen carefully to what he has preached. Respond to it and encourage each other to do this. Just go ahead and do it. The message is the same for for us today. You may not have been here for each of these lessons in these last 13 weeks. You may not understand or agree with everything, but you should respond in obedience to what you do understand. That's the point. And what you do agree with, that is from God. The only way that grace begins its work in an individual is when we respond to God in obedience. That's what he's talking about. Romans 6 uh, verses 17 and 18. So just do it. Whatever you know to do that the Bible gives you to do, that you accept that this is what the scriptures are asking me to do, do it. Just go ahead and do it. No one ever regretted obeying God. No one ever regretted obeying God even in the fine points. Number two, pray. Chapter 15, 22 to 33. In this section, Paul asked them to pray for his ministry and that he might be with them um, in his travels. Well, of course, I ask you for your prayers uh, that God bless our ministry here at Choctaw and that he keeps Lisa and I you know, healthy, active for a long time to come to be able to serve the church and serve the kingdom and that we not become discouraged, not only myself, but I encourage the church always to pray for our elders. You know, I always say the elders, that's a volunteer position. Some people say, wow, you're a minister. You get paid to be here. You know, you, this is your job. Well, fair enough. But the elders, they don't get paid to do it. They're volunteers. They volunteer their time and effort and prayer life and emotional life and family life. They volunteer to do the work that they that they do. So we need to pray for our elders and pray for our deacons. Same thing. They don't get paid. When they take a Saturday morning to come and paint or fix or, you know, or when they stay an extra 45 minutes after everyone's gone to go through the building to make sure everything is locked and secure. They're doing this voluntarily. And who are they doing it for? Well, they're doing it for us. They're doing it for the church. They're serving us in a voluntary capacity. So we need to pray for them, give thanks for them, pray that God help them not to be discouraged in their ministry. All the teachers that teach from cradle row all the way to the adult classes. Again, most other than the ministers, all volunteer. The time that they spend at home, preparing lessons, preparing 
you know, uh, for the smaller children activities, uh, the parents that accompany the teens on, 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 on trips and, and you know, various activities, all volunteers, pray for them that they might not grow discouraged. And of course, pray for our, the ministers as well. Despite the fact that we get paid to do this work, sometimes it, uh, sometimes it does get uh, discouraging. Pray for the ministers. And I ask, pray for the special ministries that we have, the outreach, of course, Bible talk. Pray that we continue to grow the number of people that use our resources uh, that the church here at Choctaw permits us to work on and to, to distribute. So pray, final encouragement, pray. And then finally, in this letter, he provides greetings and praise in chapter 16, uh, verses um, uh, 1 to 27. He's ha- he has a series of personal greetings full of affection and encouragement for people that he knows there. He warns them to be careful regarding false teachers and how to deal with them. You know, he, he says, you have a false teacher, somebody teaching something that is not scriptural, not biblical, point them out. Warn them, turn away from them. If they do not repent, make a change. And then he finishes with a final word of praise to God, of course, for having revealed the way by which all men can be saved by his grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. He gives praise to God. What a wonderful system. What a glorious thing it is. And it is a glorious thing. One of the reasons why I selected this topic uh, to teach uh, we can teach many things from the book of Romans, but I believe the, the, um, the idea of grace that, that Paul uh, demonstrates and, and explains in the book of Romans is, is a very high thing, very high and noble uh, doctrine. So I also finish uh, myself this series by thanking you for your support, your encouragement for this class. We've always had good attendance and participation. I thank you for that. And I leave you with the reminder that in the end, All I can do is explain to an extent his kindness and his mercy and his love. But only God, of course, is worthy of praise in Jesus name. And the church says amen to that. And I say amen to that as well. So thank you for your attention. And we'll begin a new round of classes next week. God bless you all. Thank you.